Hello, Sam. Sorry, this is Sam speaking in robot. Hello. Oh, we've got Robot Sam back for the first time in a very long time. Yeah. How are you, Robot Sam? I'm, I'm upgraded. What is your binary mind contemplating? <laughs> uh, it's contemplating how nice it is to see your face. Yeah, even for, we're back. Even for iron-hearted robots such as myself. <laughs> Well, no. you know what? What was the robot character in the Wizard of Oz? Didn't he? Uh, he was looking for Iron his Man. Heart. He was, yes, that's got nothing to do with anything. The Steel Man. Anyway. What was it? He was a he was a lumberjack, right? And a, 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 a warning about. I can the remember of nothing Wood. of the Wizard of Oz. <laughs> Wizard of Oz. Did you ever? I mean, watch... he wasn't a robot. He was kind of. He was like a steampunk robot, right? His name was TikTok. What? He no. first appears in Ozma. That's another no. thing. No. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's in the Oz books, which are significantly weirder than The Wizard of Oz, the movie. Have you seen... Oh, it was The Tin Man. The Tin it Man. Was, he, right. Wasn't his name The Tin Man? It was Tin yeah. Man, hey? Yeah, yeah. Totally they didn't right. have robots. They were just like, what if we had a man and he was made <laughs> of tin? Okay, but, but, but have you seen Return to Oz, which is much weirder and much more like the books, actually? No, but I'm about to. Um, it's it's one of my strongest recommendations I can give you in your whole life. But it is prepare yourself. It is truly nightmarish. <laughs> Let me add it to. I'm more organized since we last spoke, Sam. <gasps> How? We're back to what our happened? regular cadence of one episode of Take Back the Day every other year, except for <laughs> during pandemics. Yeah. And now I have a list in my Google Keep of all the things I need to check out. With my five second memory, return to. I do love that you. I do love that you're back to Google Keep though, because that has served you long and well, actually. It works like my brain works, Sam. Mm -hmm. You put things in, and sometimes they come out, and it has colors. (laughs) (laughs) That is no tagging. There's no taxonomy, (laughs) and Google will probably cancel it any day now. (laughs) (laughs) All like your brain, yes. (laughs) <laughs> exactly like my brain and your heart. <laughs> mm-hmm. I I have yeah. uh, become absolutely and utterly obsessed with obsidian, um, which is like my brain, overcomplicated, um, better in theory than in reality. <laughs> Gets very messy very quickly, um, but has some cool pictures. You are not the first extremely smart person I have heard speaking about this thing, so there has to be something there. Yeah. Let me I'm add it to the list. <laughs> oh, shit, no, I just fucked up one of my other notes. Never mind. Do you think I'll that add it to Google, the list later. Do you think that the product owners at Google keep installed a feature that if you try to make a list of uh, competitor products to try out, those those notes just magically get lost somehow and never reset? No, because they'd be slapped with an antitrust trial. And oh, psh, like Google gives a shit <laughs> about antitrust law. The fucking they they don't care about that shit. They're far past being under you know controllable by such petty things as antitrust law. Yeah, it does feel like they've tamed that mammoth. Okay, so what are the big selling points for Obsidian? It seems to be like super semantic and like it it like it figures out who you are and then it tells you and it was just like on paper it looked ultra complicated and I was like, I'm not smart enough to use this thing. 
I do often have that feeling about Obsidian. So actually what I like about Obsidian is essentially it's pure markdown and that's my favorite thing about it. So uh, it's you do love an, you some markdown. You know I love some markdown. So it's a very pure, it's quite pure. So um, it fundamentally is just an interface pointing at a bunch of markdown files. Um, and you can create folders, but you don't have to. The main way it actually encourages you uh, to structure your thinking is by linking your notes together. And then the very pleasing thing is that it gives you a whole map, like a visual view of how all the things that you're thinking about connect to each other. And then it is infinitely extensible. So you can you can add plugins to so that it can handle latex or so that it can handle data or whatever or you can keep it fairly simple and then it's just markdown it's like a private wiki where it's like lots of markdown notes with links uh-huh. between them with yeah. automatic links it sounds like can uh, it slip it, it in your other links. informations yes mm. it can it can it can you can stick in your pdfs you can stick in any kind of file and then because it's just an interface over markdown but it can also show it, it can handle pretty much anything um i love Problem it is always- I, i'm really enjoying it yeah, the, the the issue I have is always when you move from one of these things to another. Like I have Infinity Notes in Evernote and then I was convinced to try out Notion and I was like, okay, so, so Notion has an import function, which mm. doesn't work very well. And now it's like, okay, well, I'll just leave all the Evernote things in Evernote. So that's like 15 years of my life is in Evernote and I'll start yeah, building insane. a new life. Notion. <laughs> like, yeah, Notion's a bit uh, yeah. too smart as well. And it's like, Google Keep, woo! <laughs> yeah, I was even thinking, because actually most of my brain is in physical notebooks that I've been keeping since I was like 10, you know? And I was thinking, actually, at some point, I want to get someone to just scan in all of my notebooks and then it can, I, I don't know, it would be so nice to have an external brain that is actually your whole external brain. But this is another reason that I'm excited about Markdown, because potentially, even if one day I decide obsidian is bullshit which i probably will do because that's what i do with productivity tools hopefully then it'll be more feasible for me to import all of those notes into something else whatever the next shiny yeah. thing because you can kind of you can scan that shit into and even evernote has pretty good handwriting recognition like but then you'd have to scan all your notebooks which in itself is a task yeah um, but a you should do that and b may i please have a copy of sam's 10 year old diary Oh my God. I mean, I even thought like, should I just pay someone to do this? But then I was like, some poor sod is going to have to go through and read like, today Simone Nell looked at me funny in the classroom and I think she hates me. (laughs) Was that top of mind for 10 year old Sam? I mean, when would this have been? It would have been like 2018. (laughs) Yeah, like five minutes ago. I had such a complex about whether or not Simone Nell hated me because she was so cool. And I was, I was played the recorder and was not cool. Where's Simone now? now? I don't fucking know. Oh, Jesus, please don't say dead. God, I hope not. No, I wish her only the best. Be like, that fucking Simone now. (laughs) And she died tragically. (laughs) We need to end this conversation right now. And move on. Simon, what are the other things you've been thinking about in your brain recently? Oh, man. Recently being since our last episode, because that's an eon. Or recently <laughs> since I spoke to you yesterday. <laughs> I've been um I'm I'm like inclined to say I don't know why, but I do know why. I've been shut up, Siri. I've been reading a lot of books about running. And by mm. a lot I mean one and a half. That's what a lot is the me. ratio what uh, is the ratio of time spent reading books about running to time spent running at the moment? <laughs> 150%. 
No, um, <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, a lot more. So I have been running a lot more. And it's been interesting because when you run a lot, you meet other people who run a lot. And then they ask you when your next race is, for example. Um, and my answer is, I don't have one because I don't want to run a race. A, group activity, not going to happen. Uh, B, that doesn't sound like fun. And running to me is a joy. Um, mm -hmm. It feels to me like it's a discipline in the, what was her name? The lady who wrote Writing Down the Bones. Oh, blue. Mm, yes, something like that. I can't remember mm. anything. What? Um, anyway, it's so it's meditative. Let's put it that way. And to me, it's a solo activity. The way to ruin a run is to do it with somebody else. I listen to my podcasts or my audiobooks or nothing at all except my mm. stupid thoughts. I run, and when I'm tired, I walk. And I do like pushing myself. So I have started doing the Apple Watch thing. The Apple Watch came with me on runs predominantly because it enables me to listen to podcasts. And also, I've got the cellular version now, which means I can leave my phone at home, double win. Mm. Um, but it obviously tracks the run as well. And come on, of course, I want to know how far I went and how fast. Why not? But that's as far as the metrics go for me. I don't have a competitive bone in my body, as you know. Mm. And so, so fine. So I've been running more. I don't know why I was telling you all of that. But um, one of the like books that came to me... Mm -hmm. okay, Sorry, I was yeah. going to ask. Do you do you have some kind of training plan? Like, do you when you tracking the metrics? But do you have a? Do you, are you actively trying to no. improve them, or kind of just doing it as it feels good? I think I realized. So I've been trying to be a runner for very many years, <laughs> uh, and when I started, I was living up on a hill, and I was right on a trail in the mountains. So I would run out my gate into the mountain, and I was like, "Look at me! I'm a runner!" And I was very proud of myself because I would try and do this every morning. And with then, your beagles. Uh, <laughs> with the beagles. And then a mutual friend of ours came and stayed for uh, a week or weekend or whatever. And he was like, so you're running in the mountain? I'm like, yeah. And he was like, I'll come with. And I took him on this little trail of mine. And I was like, yeah, that was fun. And he was like, what do you mean? We're still in the parking lot. And I was like, no, we, that was the trail. And he was like, dude, that was like two kilometers. I'm going to just do it again and then again and then probably again and like Jeez. see you for breakfast. And I was like, oh, wow, people run really far. Mm. <laughs> so then, and so anyway, so then I, you know, I learned enough to know that like five kilometers is a good workout. One kilometer is no workout. 20 kilometers <laughs> isn't sustainable on a daily basis unless you're a superhuman. Um, yeah. Anyway, so, so I got into this cadence where I would like, you know, run five, six, seven Ks every other day. But I realized that for me, that wasn't enough. Yeah. Um, and I think part of realizing it was, it was probably something stupid like reading Phil Knight's Shoe Dog, which, by the way, is, I don't know if we've discussed this, but it's one of the best business books I've ever read. I mean, we probably discussed it in the last episode, which was so long. I can't, I can't <laughs> A even year ago. Anyway. <laughs> um, so I read this book and I, I, I read like, you know, he talks about he went through this period of his life where he was having a really rough time and he realized he should be running more because that's ultimately why he started doing this thing. And his thing was six miles a day. And I was like, wow, mm -hmm. that's that's a lot. And yeah. this whole six-mile number was stuck in my brain because another uh, person I found a lot of inspiration from his writing is um, Jim Rogers, the mm. famous investor who wrote Investment Biker and Adventure Capitalist. And, and he would run six miles a day while he was traveling to stay fit. So I was like, mm. there seems to be something magical about this distance, what which is, is roughly miles? nine is like and a half, ten kilometers. Ten k's. Okay, interesting. So I was like, okay, I'm going to try and do what Phil Knight and Jim Rogers did and run 
10 kilometers a day, which I did. And then I got plantar fasciitis very quickly. Oh, <laughs> no. This is way hard on my body. Um, <laughs> but that was sort of it. I, so I, I tried to get up to like um, 10 kilometers a day and then going, okay, well, I'm going to like hurt myself if I do this too quickly every day. But got to the point after a few months where like I can get up, put on my shoes, run 10 kilometers without stopping, which I was very proud mm. of. Because mm. for me to have a, a whole run without any walking is amazing. Um, yeah. And then kind of was like, well, I've, you know, I don't want to lose this now. So I'm going to, this is my thing. I'm going to keep at it to the mm. best of my abilities in between getting drunk and falling over and fucking up a business. <laughs> <laughs> um, I can't remember where I was going with this. Oh, the books. You were talking about, yeah, books. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, so one of the books that came to me on this journey was uh, Born to Run, which I don't mm. know if you've read. Which is I've actually have read about parts this. of it. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, it's about a lot of things, all of them to do with running, but it centers on this tribe in South America. Um, that have just sort of running is intrinsic to their culture and they do it very naturally. And um, they, I think one of the big things that attracted me to it as it does to so many books is uh, it's counterintuitive. It's like, mm. you know, your doctor and everybody else is telling you, you need really good padded, brand new expensive running shoes. These guys run barefoot or they strap mm. old tires to their feet and they outrun anybody on the planet and they have no injuries. So mm. maybe, maybe like, you know, what you're being told <laughs> Um, about running shoes isn't right. Yeah. And you know me, the moment somebody's being contrarian, I'm like, woohoo! <laughs> um, so read that, and then that, it actually didn't lead me, uh, so so Taryn, dear Taryn, came home one day with this book called Eat and Run by Scott Jurek. And I didn't immediately put two and two together, but Scott is one of the characters in uh, Born to Run. So mm -hmm. he's arguably the greatest ultra runner in history. Um, and he wrote this book called Eat and Run. And one of Scott Jurek's claims to fame, besides being the best like 100-mile-plus runner in the world, is he was the first sort of ultra-athlete that was 100% vegan as well. Mm. And the thinking when he started doing this in the late 90s, early 2000s, if memory serves, um, it was like, it's impossible. You're not going to get enough protein. And like, you can't be an ultra-athlete and not eat meat. Yeah, and Scott Jurek was like, "Oh yeah, watch this!" And like mm -hmm. on a completely one hundred percent vegan do it? diet. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> how do you think gorillas do it? Have you seen their yeah. muscles? Um, <laughs> just beat everyone else and prove definitively that that was nonsense. Um, cool. So it's been like running's been a whole thing for me. It's been meditative. Mm -hmm. It's gotten like I, th I think, and again, like my memory is terrible, but. In Born to Run, um, there's this one line where he's like, somebody tells the author that if you just start running, it'll fix everything else. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, and it hasn't fixed everything else, but it has certainly reframed a lot of things for me. And it's amazing how it's gotten its way into other parts of my life. Mm. Um, and we can talk more about that maybe. But um, but one of the things that's really hit me with Scott Jurek's book is thinking about endurance mm -hmm. and like how you get through very difficult things. Um, and there's, you know, obviously a lot in Scott Jurek's world that is extremely difficult that he's gotten through and kind of reading his musings about that has been fascinating. I guess, I mean, that's, that's the thing for me about running. So as someone who's, you know, even when I was at my most running fits, I think I could manage about like a kilometer and a half, you know, at, at a go. 
Um, I think I once ran 5Ks once, one time, and it was it was thrilling. Um, for me, it's it's the mental game. Like my brain checks out much sooner than my muscles do or my or my lungs do. Um, but I think there's something I, I like what you're saying about how if you can crack running, it can fix so many other things. And I think the corollary, like I think that there's all of us have different types of endurance that we we're, we're working on, I think. Right. So in my world recently, what this is really resonating with is I'm trying to write a novel and my God, is that not an endurance sport? Because it is, it's just this thing you have to do every single day and you have to keep pushing yourself through it every single day, even though it's incredibly boring. Um, and you've got to keep redirecting your focus back onto this task because your brain keeps trying to uncheck like check out from the task as soon as it gets hard and you've just got to keep wrestling mm. it back and wrestling it back. And it never stops. Like it never gets easier. Um, so it, interesting, the, the six mile thing, because the other person I know who runs six miles every day is Murakami, the, the incredible Japanese novelist. Uh, so he has one of the most mm. insane writing schedules of anyone. I know he wakes up at 4am every day. Um, and then he writes for, I don't know, like five hours and then he, he runs 10 kilometers and swims. I don't know how much he swims, but he, he, he runs 10 kilometers and then swims as well every day. And he says, um, that's the thing that allows him to write because he needs, well, firstly, because writing is very sedentary, but also because it needs an incredible amount of mental strength and you can only support that mental strength by also having the physical endurance. Those two things are the same thing, you know? Um, ah. which I think is really interesting. It, I think he's the one, he said something about like writing a novel is like survival training, <laughs> which is something I've been thinking about a lot recently, just about how these things are synergistic yeah. in our lives, you know? There's also something about having a practice. Um, mm. and practices can be anything. It can be writing itself, I guess. Um, it can be really like swinging. Like mm. my son, when he was three, like he'd go into this, like glazed overlook when you're sitting on a swing and he would just never want it to end. And mm. there was like a flow being experienced, like swinging was his practice. Right. Yeah, but yeah. I think, um, I think when you pick something mm. and you kind of choose to spend a lot of time doing it for the sake of doing it, not necessarily yeah. to get something out of it. And you make that your practice. Mm. It starts to inform other parts of your life. It starts mm. to make you think differently or you start relating the other things you're doing to this thing that you're doing for this mystical kind of purpose mm. of, I'm not preparing for a race. I want to be fit, but like, I don't really care. And I don't think I'm that unfit anyway. Mm. I don't actually know why I'm doing this thing, but something in me called me to it. And sometimes it's hard and I'm going through the bell curve of, I start thinking it's easy. And then I get to the middle part where I realized that actually I had no idea what I was talking about. And I hope to get to the other side of the bell curve where it's easy again. Yeah. yeah. Um, and I think you can experience that with anything because you might not be able to run or you might not be able to write, but maybe you can hum really well. Or, mm -hmm. you know, maybe you can learn to play an instrument or cook or mm -hmm. do something that isn't like, it doesn't have that sort of ends in sight. It's not like, well, yeah. I'm doing this because I, I need to get money somehow to buy clothes <laughs> and underpants. Um, <laughs> but it's like, I, I'm actually, I can't really articulate why I'm doing this. You know? Yeah, I like um, that idea of your It's practice. just like, this is the thing I've chosen. Mm. It's interesting because all practices, in a way, require this real comfort with boredom. And it's interesting thinking about, 
grit in, in this context, right? So when you think about grit and perseverance and these things, because I mean, I think we do these things because there is some kind of bliss in them somewhere, right? Like there's a, there's bliss when you get into your running zone, even if it's hard, there's something about it that's very satisfying and like this deep, I don't know, this really deep inexplicable level. Um, that that where there isn't an outcome, but there's a bliss in the activity, but you have to just push through. It seems so much boredom before you can get to that point, like repetition. And in a way, there's something about like, is there, is there a lot of bliss to be found in being a very boring person, you know, like having a routine because a Mm -hmm. practice is a routine, right? Um, It's more than a routine. It's also about it. Yeah, it is. It. It is more than a routine, but it's it's also going to call on you to endure parts of it that aren't going to be pleasant. Mm. And you and I have both experienced this with writing, you more than me, because you do it more than I do, but and you're way better at it. But like writing is going to get you to a point where you don't want to write anymore and there's going to be pain involved in carrying on. And yeah. that's when you're really going to get called to kind of, I suppose... Ultra running is an extreme kind of um, analogy for this all because, like, fucking Scott Jerick is insane. Like, mm. he, he ran the Hard Rock 100, which is known, I mean, the many races claim to be the toughest race in the world. But this race is 100 miles long, right? Mm. Mm. Um, which means you're going to run through the night and the day and a bit of the night again, probably. Um, it's over Wait, the roughest so- terrain in the world. So, so you're gonna context, ex- you're gonna sorry the so the like the comrades is what like a hundred kilometers so this is two comrade marathons pretty much pretty much okay. double the comrades right okay, um, yeah. so significantly further it's gonna take you at least twice as long so okay. this isn't something you're gonna do during a day to, mm. you're gonna do this during a day and a night so sleep sleep deprivation temperatures ranging from like so cold your eyeballs will start freezing to so hot that you know you're starting to evaporate and smelling your own skin burning over ice over crags with a total elevation equivalent to running up mount everest and down again and here's the kicker the dude broke his ankle two days before the race right not wow. sorry not broke his ankle he tore ligaments big difference right so he sprained his ankle and tore two ligaments in his ankle so had an ankle the size of a grapefruit decided to run put on an ankle brace taped it up with duct tape literally every step was like a dagger being pushed into the bottom of his foot and running up his entire body ran the hard rock 100 and won it by 12 That's minutes amazing. like the next person came in 12 minutes after him right <laughs> Like, that's amazing. Absolutely insane. Other races that he did with a broken toe. And he talks about how, in order to be this good at running, he had to learn meditation and he had to mm. learn to get in control of his thoughts. And he had, he had to develop his upper body strength because he originally thought, like, yeah, who cares? Like, running is all about your legs. No, um, you have to learn how to breathe, learn how to think, learn, mm. you know, your, your core needs to be strong. You need to learn good posture. But he also talks, back to your point, about this feeling that you get once you've conquered the pain and you've come through it, mm-hmm. when after mile 96, you're no longer feeling your, bro- your, your sprained ankle, and there's this bliss that descends upon you mm. um, that's almost guaranteed if you make it there, but getting mm. there is quite an ask. 
Absolutely. That's irreplaceable. Like this is the only way you're going to get to that level. And I suppose that's where the addiction comes in. Mm. Um, actually, there's a, there's a passage in the book that I want to read to you because I stored it in my Google Keep. But sorry, you were going to say something first. No, no, no. Find the passage. I'll go, look, the passage. I'll go look for it. I'll go look for it. Okay. I'll go look for it. Well, I was just going to say, I think it's deeper than addiction, right? Like this, this, this form of bliss. And so I was talking to a friend recently uh, who did, I can't remember exactly what it's called. I think it's called a Vipassana, which is one of these like deep hippie meditation retreats where you go, it's like a silent retreat. And basically you sit and meditate for like 10 days and you might do some stretching in between, but otherwise it's just you and your body and your brain. Um, and she was describing it to me and it sounds like the most by far the most difficult endurance sport I've ever heard of anyone do. But she talks about how, because I mean, when you just sit with your body, your body, you experience so much pain. And that is partly from being still, but also it's because in the same way, if you get into a sensory deprivation chamber, you, you, you know, you're all that, that very silent place we've spoken about before, your brain will manufacture sound and it will manufacture sight. I think in the same way, like your brain if it has nothing distracting it, it will try very hard to distract itself, in, even if it means distracting itself by creating pain and sensation in your body. Um, and you just have to sit with that. And she says the breakthrough that you get to at some point is realizing that you're not the pain that you're in. Like you can choose to some extent to identify with the mm. pain or to kind of be a bit separated from it and just understand that that's a sensation and you can kind of just let it go if you want to. You don't have to, hmm. it doesn't have to pain you psychologically, if that makes any sense. Having never done a Vipassana because I am not <laughs> mentally tough enough, <laughs> I, I can only describe how she described it to me, but it sounded really amazing. And it did. It, it, you meditate I mean, though. I do a little bit. I mean, not that level. Um, but I mean, this guy that you were just talking about, whose name I've already forgotten, the running guy, like that's that's not a physical sport that he's doing. That is a mental sport, right? And I guess all sports yeah, yeah, are mental yeah. sports on, on that extreme. Yeah. What is the question? Yeah. Did you find I mean, if it, if it was purely physical, you'd sprain your ankle and go, fuck this, I'm out. Like yeah. you, the animal has been damaged. <laughs> so you're exactly right. And having, you know, I'm I'm not the world's, you know, top meditator, but for me to sit for 20 minutes is challenging. Mm. Um, although it's, it's, it's weird because sometimes it feels like one minute and then my, you know, timer goes off and I'm like, yeah, was that 20? Anyway, that aside, I haven't come near a Vipassana of like, you know, not even five days, not even one day, not even an hour, never mind 10 days. Not that you're meditating the whole time, of course, but of course you aren't speaking to anybody. Um, you're, you're pretty much fasting. You're having a bowl of rice now and then, but, um, and and the drop off rate, if I remember correctly, is something like seventy percent of people who tried for the first time don't make it past day three. They just like it. I'm out. Mm. <laughs> and a lot of people go crazy as well. Like there's a dark side to to these vipassana retreats as well that I don't think gets spoken about enough because mm. this, you know, to me it's 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 kind of it's similar to hallucinogenics. It's like, yeah. you know, this is a good thing. In the right, under the right circumstances for the right people, but I'm not going to go and suggest that anybody go and do it. And it's interesting how it feels like hallucinogenics are a shortcut to the kind of thing that's happening in extended medi meditation. 
Anyway. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, so similarly, um, I did th- this really cool thing recently in London called the Dream Machine. So it's being run by Anil Seth, who's this, well, I'm not saying uh, it's not entirely correct that it's being run by, but he was one of the people who uh, conceptualized it, conceived it and, and developed it. But it's it's developed by a group of neuroscientists based on this kind of old machine actually from the 50s that Allen Ginsberg, for example, used. Um, and the idea is that it, 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 it flashes the lights at you and it induces sober hallucinations. It, it puts you in the kind of a drug altered state while sober. Um, and so there's an experience going around London. It's free. Um, and it's been developed very carefully. They've checked that it won't induce epilepsy or anything like that, where you kind of lie down and you get a cool little sun lounger, um, and a blankie and an eye mask and a super cozy and you sit in a circle with a bunch of strangers in a dark room and you close your eyes and lights flash at you. Um, and they play this beautiful Johns Hopkins uh, soundtrack that was written specifically for tripping to. And you have the most intense, wonderful, beautiful, closed eye hallucinations. It's amazing. Um, and there's nothing happening except lights being flashed at your at your eyes at a certain frequency that makes you see crazy things and it's just it's amazing that like your brain your brain has all these latent abilities it's so much weirder than we give it credit and i think it's 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 doing a lot more in our day-to-day lives than we're aware of like it's inventing a lot more things than we're conscious of all the time and this makes that very clear i felt in a funny way yeah, I'm I'm completely intrigued with this and wish I could go and do it immediately. But Come like, to okay, so, so so hypothetically, um, if one were to, I don't know, ingest something like psilocybin accidentally and the kind of experience you'd have on that hypothetically, hypothetically. Mm. how close do you think, Sam, this is actually <laughs> to that kind of experience? Like, does it have that sort of scale? And I don't know, like, is it as, Im- as are you as immersed in that experience? Is it as convincing as I what would, happens to brains on psilocybin so or of course DMT? Being a, or, so of- yeah, so of course, being an utterly sober person who's uh, never never taken drugs in my life, gosh, gasp. Um, I would I would say it's like it's like a one percent of DMT, right? It's like a it's like a very very watered down version of the intense visuals, but it's of the same type. You know what I mean? Like it's similarly fractal. Uh-huh. Similarly, your brain is is it's it's not only fractal. It's it's you have you know I saw human figures. I saw. Um, I had I had the sense of the space being very large. I had a sense I didn't have a sense um, as as you know hypothetically one might have with uh, psychedelics of of other consciousnesses that you're kind of interacting with, like the DMT gnomes. Mm. Um, I didn't have any of that. It was much more a sense of my brain is doing very interesting things. But what was interesting that was similar as well is that there was a moment towards the end where I became quite anxious. And they, before you go in, they, there is some hypnosis in this as well, where I think they prime you. Um, and by saying like, this is how you can stop the experience for yourself if you need to. Um, and there was a point towards the end where the music became quite discordant and I became quite anxious and was about to bail from the experience. I was like, I actually can't wow. do this experience for one more second. And I pushed through it. And then afterwards, what was fascinating is some, you have a little debrief with the, with the other people that are, that have done the experience with you. 
And some people were sobbing. And some people had had these really emotional emotional reactions to what was happening. It wasn't only a visual experience, which is also kind of a mm. very interesting thing about what what your brain is doing when left by itself without being entertained by the world, you know? It was it was yeah. very cool. I, I do recommend do recommend it. It's it's odd and strange and unusual. I'm adding it to my list in Google. <laughs> <laughs> do you have a list of things to do in London when you come visit me next? <laughs> well, this is on them now. <laughs> I always have a list of things to do when I come to London to visit Sam. Um <laughs> Yeah, it's amazing how you can get brains to these states without, you know, a uh, a chemical or a, mm. a thing catalyzing it. Um, mm. Like breath work, for example, you have similar sort of uh, experiences being um, expressed by people who have gone through some of these more severe, like you know, breath sessions where you're literally just altering your breathing in in a particular way. Mm. Um, and it's funny how this detachment from reality slash like hallucination is always part of it. Like mm. back to Scott Jurek and his running, um, something that is kind of prevalent with ultra runners is when they're in those, those states after running for like 28, 30 hours, hallucination just comes. Like he talks mm. about how he's dodged phantom photographers in the road that weren't actually there. Um, wow. And ran next to people for several miles and had conversations with them who weren't really there, um, mm. you know. So whether it's whether it's breath work or or whether it's actual hallucinogenics, whether it's meditation or, mm. I mean, I, I don't know that you've ever written yourself into a state of hallucination, but <laughs> uh, well, I mean, isn't that what I'm doing while I'm fucking making up that's stories? Just, as I'm sitting talking oh to my, my God, imaginary friends, it is. It is. But I mean, it also, you know, um, I can't remember if it was Shackleton or the other one scots i don't know but one of the one of the doomed arctic or antarctic ex expeditions i think it was one of the antarctic ones um i think it was scots where they all just died the very tragic one um they spoke about how or they, they wrote in their journals about a fourth man so there were three of them in the for the the last bit of the trek and they all of them felt at different times there was a fourth person there with them um, so speaking about Somebody endurance else and kind of the, them. yeah, yeah, like the when you push yourself to these these altered states, it's interesting because it's it's fundamentally about creativity at that point as well. There's something there. Like I, mm. I remember, you know, chatting to the Google, um, the the Deep Mind guys, and I think you and I have spoken about this before, where they they got Deep Mind, this artificial intelligence, to hallucinate. Um, and fundamentally, the model for hallucination is that you're flipping flipping the switch, if you will, on input versus interpretation. Mm. Um, so, you know, in, in a normal state of mind, you'll perceive an input and then, you know, your neural networks in your brain will match it to something. It's pattern recognition. So I've seen this shape before. It connects to a thing called a cat in my brain. So mm. therefore, there must be a cat out there in reality. And fundamentally, what hallucination does is flip that script to go, well, now the idea is coming first. And so my sensory mm. organs are going, oh, this thing's there. Where is it? Where is it? And they're perceiving it where it isn't. Yeah, it's um, like overfitting what you expect. Yeah. You're almost in a state of hyper-creation where you're kind mm. of ideating directly into reality. Mm. 
Well, this is getting seriously out there. No, but I mean, it's, but like, we do that all the time. You know, if you think about how, like all of our cognitive biases, for example, like how you're more, what is the one where um, you, you register things that align with you and support your existing worldview more? Than oh, yeah. I mean, yeah, evidence, cognitive biases is, is, is kind know? of the umbrella term for them all. You exactly. know, there's yeah, yeah confirmation bias. There's bias. yeah, yeah. We d- yeah. yeah, we all do this all day. We totally. we trip the world around us and we convince each other that it's all actually there. So actually, the best one of the best things I've ever done that has helped me to, in in one context at least, turn off the overfitting. So kind of projecting from your idea into the world is this incredible book called uh, Drawing on the Right Side of the Brain which is a drawing course based on some quite old methods for teaching fundamental drawing skills. And one of the reasons that people struggle to draw and specifically, I mean like all children draw and then children stop drawing at some point, most children and people who, you know, think of themselves as being good at drawing, I think are just kids who kept drawing after, after other people stopped. Um, But it's, it's a method that teaches you to not draw a face by you know, telling yourself, okay, what is a face? A face has two eyes, an eye is shaped like mm. that, let me draw the eye. But to actually just look at the shapes of what exists in the reality and to draw what you see, which actually is very difficult. Um, but mm. that's that's the kind of breakthrough is is drawing what you see. And I, and I felt like that's also something that has applied in a lot of other contexts in my life rather than rushing first to interpretation is actually to sit with the input right is and 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 be present in the inputs which i guess is is running it's meditation that's kind of what's happening that and maybe i love that and if i remember yeah yeah if i remember correctly she starts by forcing you to draw things upside down yeah is that right yeah yeah because when you draw something upside down you kind of force to let go of your conventions around how these shapes are assembled and just draw what you see, but in a different way. Yeah. I need to go back to that book. I kind of started it years ago. I managed to find a PDF because it's one of those books that's not very easy to find. Mm. Um, And I've always been meaning to go back to it. So thank you for the prompt. It's such Um, a win. But but back to endurance. So, and I, I think we're scratching at what Scott Jurek is talking about at the heart of endurance, because part of it is letting go of rational thought. Because mm. to write that next page, to sit down that next morning and open your laptop and like, you know, do the thing you need to do, part of you needs to let go of the very rational reasons why you shouldn't. Mm. Um, and so that's that. So the passage I wanted to read you was, if I remember correctly, big if, um, there's this race that's recreated every year between Athens and Sparta. Um, and it recreates the journey of this mythical messenger, whatever you can read the book, but, um, but it's a really grueling race. It's way more than a hundred miles. I think it's like 136. It's through the heat of the Greek summer, very challenging terrain, etc. Scott Jurek does this with a broken toe or something. Um, and, uh, he goes into this thing about like how you get through, like that point in the race where everything in you, including your friends and the people supporting you are telling you you're going to die unless you stop, you can't carry on, right? So, mm-hmm. so here's what he says. He says, rational assessments too often led to rational surrenders. I try to go to that place beyond thinking, that place that can bring an ultra marathon as such happiness. And then this I really love. He's like, people always ask me what I think about when running so far for so many hours. Random thinking is the enemy of the ultra marathoner. 
thinking is best used for the primitive essentials. When I ate last, the distance to the next aid station, the location of the competition, my pace. Other than those considerations, the key is to become immersed in the present moment when nothing else matters. Mm. But like that first line, rational assessments too often lead, led to rational surrenders. That's mm. like a tattoo right there. It's so good. It's so good. It's like, it's so, yeah. stop thinking. <laughs> <laughs> it is, it's fascinating to me how these things overlap, like running and meditating and, and creative work. Yeah, it, it is. That what he's just described sounds like meditation. It sounds like really extreme physical meditation. Yeah. And I think like that's that that was that's the gold from the book that I've started seeing in the rest of of what I do is mm -hmm. like overthinking man those rational surrenders and going yeah you guys are right I should stop this is dumb <laughs> like no <laughs> <laughs> who knows rational surrenders anyway. what, what rational thinking leads to rational surrenders that's great yeah there's something about there's something about like uh, a surrender because it's almost uh, like that idea of giving up is um it is rational and it's mm -hmm. like it's like something in you versus like quitting because you know you're done or stopping because you know this is impossible anymore giving up is inherently like a decision it's like mm -hmm. you know i could dig deeper there's perhaps some part of me that could get through this if i just carried on but like i'm actually choosing yeah. now to go it's over. So for me, surrendering is a little bit different from quitting, you know? Yeah. In a, in a funny way, there's like an ego death in being able to continue, right? Because there's a, there's a choice to not identify with the pain, a choice to say like, you know, this discomfort that I'm in doesn't matter. Um, I don't matter to some extent. Like I'm just going to be in this mm. experience, whatever it is. And maybe it's only through ego death we can find bliss is my super wanky way of saying this. But I think that's my outcome, yeah. That's 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 what I have learned. This is our, most, to talk this about is our most hippie discussion on the internet ever. <laughs> Jesus, I what the it. fuck has happened to us in the last year? <laughs> We've gotten so old. I think that is the problem. We've gotten old and not done too many drugs. <laughs> mm. We've wasted our youth on yeah. being productive. And, lame. And lame. So, anyway. Simon. Do you want to tell me about something you, know, you love? Well, actually, so instead of doing that, you know how we always used to end every episode with just here's the thing that we loved? What if instead of doing that, instead of doing that, we end each episode with a challenge? Okay. Like what a, kind like of a challenge? Thing? <laughs> like like a thing we like we've definitely not discussed this before this episode like a thing that where i give you a thing to go and watch or a task to go and do and then in our next episode which won't be a year from now you can report back on how it went and if anyone happens to be listening to this conversation on the internet wants to go and try the challenge themselves as well then they can do that too sounds an awful lot like you've got a challenge in mind sam I actually don't, but I but I suspect you might. I mean, so I was going like adding to my notes now. One of the things that was about two lines above the thing that I can't even remember that I put in my notes to begin <laughs> of. This is why you have notes, kids. Was rewatch Jim and Andy. Have you ever seen Jim and Andy? I don't even know what Jim and Andy is. Give me give me the rundown. Oh my god. Jim and Andy is I think it's on Netflix. Let's see, Jim and Andy. 
because of course, if you can't watch it, they would suck. Yeah, it is on Netflix. Uh-huh. Um, it's actually called Jim and Andy, The Great Beyond. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's basically the story of Jim Carrey playing Andy Kaufman um, in the full Man on the Moon. Yeah, which is the weirdest uh, Jim Carrey movie and the best. Well, yeah. if you think that movie's weird, wait until you see the making of where he literally becomes motherfucking Andy Kaufman and can't snap out of it. <laughs> for the entire making of the film and drives everybody, including the crew, the director, his family, and everybody he knows crazy in the process. Um, It's actually, come to think of it, it's perfect for this discussion (laughs) because there's like a complete letting go of reality involved in this and also a questioning of like who he is, you know? Like Mm -hmm. if I was able to actually be Andy Kaufman in my mind, like, who is Jim Carrey then? Wow. Um, and so, I don't know. I saw this a very long time ago. And one of the quotes that stuck with me was he talks about his dad um, basically taking up a job as an accountant when he was a kid to, you know, support the family and do the right thing. It wasn't what he wanted to do, but it was what he felt like he had to do. Mm. And then he eventually gets retrenched. Um And the way Jim Carrey puts it, I'm probably butchering the quote, but he says something to the effect of, I realized that you could fail at doing things you hate. Mm. So you may as well do something that you love. So anyway, that was like this cherry that I'd taken with me from watching Jim and Andy, but I've kind of forgotten the rest of it and want to go back and watch it again. So that is my challenge to you, Sam. Deal. I shall do it. Yes. Great. And I will rewatch it and then we can discuss it in our next episode in 2028. No. It'll be sooner than then. No, because this is why we have a challenge, so that we we have to check in on the challenge more quickly. Yeah. Ah, Yeah. I like where this is going. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, cool. And then I will think of a challenge for you that I will give you in our next, the next time we chat. But we can can compare notes on Jim and Andy. Fantastic. Well, at least tell me what you're reading at the moment. Okay. Well, I just finished a book that I absolutely fucking loved called Tomorrow and Tomorrow and Tomorrow, which I particularly think you would love, actually. Um, yeah, you've mentioned it to me before. I have, but it's it's essentially tomorrow a book and about... Tomorrow and Tomorrow. Yeah. I mean, what got... what The reason I picked it up was because John Green said it was one of the best books that he's ever read. And I'm like, take well, my money. If John right? Green says so, yeah, exactly. That's all I need to know, basically. And, you know, as he is all the time, he was right. Um, it just, so it's this book about these two kids who meet each other in a hospital in the late eighties, early nineties. I can't remember exactly when. Um, and the boy whose name I can't remember is in there because he has been in a terrible car accident and is, you know, having endless surgeries on his leg. And the girl is in there because her sister has cancer. So there's both these kids spending an enormous amount of time in hospital and they pass the time by playing loads and loads of video games. And then, and you know, back when they start off, they're playing, um, oh man, what's the the one where you die of dysentery? The, the Oregon Trail. They're playing the Oregon Trail and they're playing <laughs> Mario. And then, and then basically the novel follows their friendship over the next several decades when they start collaborating and making video games together. And it's just the story oh, wow. of why we love games, um, but also of creative collaboration and relationships 
forms of love that don't have familiar forms and 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 structures in the world but like this deep deep friendship and partnership that these two people have over many decades both in and out of video games and the world of video games it's just absolutely delightful i'm particularly recommending it to anyone i know who loves gaming or has ever loved gaming um but it's also just this wonderful not quite a romance just sort of like a an incredible book about a relationship between two people who love each other very much it's just great. Tomorrow and it's Tomorrow so and Tomorrow by so Gabrielle good. Zevin. Yes, and it okay, did make me cool. cry a little. Yeah, this is my warning. I'm going to load it up as an audiobook and put Yay. it in my ear holes while I'm running. I think you'll like Thank it. Thank you, Sam. Yeah. 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 Okay, so cool. I've got my challenge that I've given to you. I have my you. challenge. I'm not You've going to challenge myself to run to... six miles every day, but I feel like I should. Actually, maybe that's a good challenge. Maybe. Okay. What is, how much are you running at the moment on an average weekday? So I would say I'm doing between seven and 10 kilometers every other day, at least. So I'm not going to overstate it. I went through, amazing. I went through two weeks where I literally was trying to run 10 kilometers a day. And then on Saturday, I do a longer run, like 18, 20 kilometers but i wasn't joking about the plantar fasciitis like the shit was getting worse and yeah. i was like i feel 80 years old i'm probably hurting myself let's slow this yeah. the fuck down and That's so now cool. it's like yeah seven eight nine ten kilometers every other day fine okay so actually a challenge that i'm going to give myself based on this conversation is i am going to run two kilometers at some point before we next talk and i also think that you should Samantha. give yourself a counter challenge of spending one hour writing wow that's a big ask yeah <laughs> okay it's fine. hard fine. that's hard I'm like, it's, 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 my it's two like, kilometers let's do one challenge me. no let's do five <laughs> this fine. is this is I'll my write brain for an hour. this is what happens Whatever. in my brain Easy. i think you should write for an hour that is going to be good endurance training for you Although I know that you've spent many hours of your life writing, but yes, and I will run two kilometers. And I'll I'll throw in an extra challenge. Let's make more podcasts <laughs> and not just do one episode every three years. Fine. It's so awful. I hate it. <laughs> yeah. Hanging out with you and talking on the internet. Yeah. Oh, sucks. Sucks. Yuck, man. Okay, okay, good. I feel like we have much homework, but I'm excited about all of it. I'm going to watch Jim and Andy. I'm going to go running two mm -hmm. kilometers. Mm -hmm. That's it. And I'm going to ride for an hour. Yeah. Kev, shall we stick a fork in it then? Okay. All right, Sam. I love you. I love you. <laughs> Bye.